Welcome to the Conversations with Women of Color podcast with your hosts Danusha and Megan. In today's episode, we chat with Ishe Govinder, freelance travel, food and culture journalist. She's a writer, blogger, cook and explorer. She's also the blogger behind Food and the Fabulous and author of the book Curry. Mail and Guardian named her the top 200 young South Africans in 2014. Last year, she won the Food XX Fresh Voices for journalism covering the intersection of food, culture and social justice. Ishe also founded SAPOC at the table, which is an empowering platform for people of color in the food, beverage and creative industry. Ishe, welcome to Conversations with Women of Color. So I wanted to just ask you, from lawyer to journalism, what was that transition like? Hmm. So I'd just like to say first that uh, SAPOC at the table is for all people of color, but of course yes. we prioritize women of color for many reasons. You know, the transition is a question I've been answering for so many years now, and I don't think I've got it down pat as to exactly how it happened. Um, for me, it felt like it was organic. I never intended to leave. That was never my intention. It's just a series of events that happened soon after I took a sabbatical uh, that uh, led me to this position. I've always been writing, and I see a lot of that, particularly the social justice element echoed in the work that I do. Those are certainly the kind of stories that I'm looking to write. I mean, the, my main focus when writing stories is the exploration of culture. I happen to do it through the lens of food and beverage, because it, you know, it's, it's a means that's a little easier, I suppose, everyone eats, but everyone has, a, you know, some kind of culinary story to share, but I use that as a means to try to understand the politics, um, the, the ritualistic and religious practices, uh, the role, the gender roles in a community as well. Like you mentioned, you obviously focus on the intersection between food, culture, justice and representation. So can you tell us a bit more about your journey um, as a journalist and why this is constantly been um, something you're interested in? Yeah, I've, I've, you know, it's really hard to express why one is interested in something. You sometimes feel drawn to it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I always think of uh, people speak about a calling and I'm not sure I've I, you know, when I, I speak to people in the medical profession, for example, you very much can understand what a calling is there, right? When you look yeah. at the kind of sacrifice that one has to put in, the kind mm -hmm. of hours, the kind of work that people, you know, not many people can do. I think perhaps this is the closest I've come in my, in my work to a calling. Um, certainly the work that I uh, get the most pleasure out of uh, in the stories that I do, the ones where I can amplify voices uh, that have been marginalized. And the one thing I'd like people to know, particularly in, um, in South Africa, is that the marginalized in South Africa are not, are not the minority. And that is a very mm -hmm. crucial and interesting dynamic that we navigate within, within food and beverage, but also outside it. The marginalized community, you said, is not the minority. So who would you say is the marginalized community there? Well, we, we, we speak in general about the black yeah. population. And I speak, of course, using Biko's definition of black. But we can yes. look at that as PLC as well, because we're looking at a 90% people of color population, 80%. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and particularly, we're looking at women. Um, and uh, I would say women, elderly women as well, mm -hmm. who 
traditionally or certainly during the 80s and 90s were the ones left behind to take care of families for many reasons. One, when you look at migrant labor, two, when you look at the AIDS epidemic, uh, that literally wiped out families. And so today we have those grandmothers and great grandmothers who, who remain, sometimes are the only ones remaining in um, a, an extended family. And I think we, we're still not just working on, but we still, we have sowed those, we're reaping the seeds there. And it's, it's a lot of work to be done. So I would say that in this country, we look at women um, as, as a marginalized group, for sure. It's a very like untold story, I think, that not, we don't always speak about the elderly being the marginalized community. So I think that's a really um, interesting yeah. topic. Um, as I wanted to know from you as well, you've traveled quite extensively over the past few years. And which would you say was your favorite trip? And how was that experience? Oh, yeah, that's it. So if I look at the last 13 years, it's pretty much like a lifetime of travel uh, managed to squeeze in, uh, into that. And it's something I'm exceptionally grateful for. I also know it's mm -hmm. not the norm, certainly for colors, uh, writers of color. Yeah. Um, color from South Africa. Uh, we understand what the media uh, landscape is like, for example. And we also understand what opportunities are like. So it's really difficult. I mean, I can give you a highlight of three and then actually come back to elderly women in this mm -hmm. answer. Yeah, so <laughs> one of the, the trips that I took that was really, I suppose, test my mettle because I'm not necessarily um, a terribly adventurous person as much as some of the travels have taken me to places like Greenland and, you know, experiencing mm -hmm. heights of, of of, of winter, you know, speaking about minus 40 degrees Celsius, that kind of thing. But uh, when I was in the northeast of um, Colombia, uh, so this is sort of very, very close to Panama, visited a village of 140. And the, uh, the reason I was there was to document a very interesting project uh, where the women um, there were try were starting a restaurant. They didn't want anyone to stay in the village. In fact, there was nowhere to stay. Um, and they didn't want you to stay there, but she, they wanted you to stay in the next town and support them, but to come and eat this food. And what was really difficult, one of the many challenges they face in this community, is this is a community that is completely overrun by the drug trade. So when the uh, drug lords arrive, everything comes to standstill because they're on the direct route to Panama. And, uh, you know, there, there are so many challenges with this as well. They've obviously lost lots of they've lost their children to uh well not just to the trade but also those who leave a little village to seek other opportunities in bigger towns so they were hoping that this restaurant project would be something to entice the young people to come back in and it's a fascinating model and of course here i was sitting with the older women who are the heads of that village pretty much that was a fascinating experience. Most of them are the descendants of African slaves, but who have lost contact completely. The most they could say was that when they do see people of African descent or they see people from the African continent, they mm -hmm. feel a connection. They feel a connection in, in the bones almost, but they can't say. And, you know, I think that's a story as well uh, that resonates across uh, slavery as a whole mm -hmm. uh, when we think about the descendants of slaves and the descendants of indentured laborers as well where there's this disconnection so that was a fascinating really enriching trip and i was very 
um, glad to have been able to write that story for Savar. And then the other thing I can speak about, uh, Megan, you had mentioned the book that I wrote, Curry yes. Stories in South Africa. So I traveled around the country for one year <clears throat> documenting stories. Uh, so I use these recipes as a vehicle again. And what we were doing was we were exploring the lives that people lived under apartheid. That's actually one of the large themes that that mm -hmm. made that announced itself. And I realized that very early into the interviews that this yeah. is what we were doing. And um, we were visiting, our, I was visiting community cooks. So I wasn't quite, I mean, there's so many good cooks in my own family and there's so many incredible <laughs> chefs that I know. So I knew to do this uh, in a way to tell a South African story, I would have to knock on doors. And that's what I did. I traveled, um, it was difficult. Parts of it were quite arduous. Parts of it were me crying at the side of the road, um, you know, waiting for someone to answer a door or a religious organization to, to point me in the right direction or a librarian. Oftentimes, yeah. you, won't, you won't believe it, but in small towns, it's the librarians who uh, are the ones you want to speak to. Uh, if yeah. there were two of them, if there were fellow journalists, I would, yeah. you know, connect with them and let them lead me to the community cooks. So these are the cooks. And we're speaking, I mean, the majority of the people in the book happen to be women. Mm -hmm. uh, these were women who would cook for, you know, funerals and coming of age parties and weddings and so on. So they, they are also the people who hold numerous stories about a community, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, one thing that I found consistent with this, particularly with speaking to the older woman, was that their stories are not documented and their recipes are not documented. So it's it's something I've been doing for many years, but I encourage them to write these down and to also, if they couldn't, get their grandchildren or children to help them to write them down. Because the one thing you will see in the food and beverage story, particularly in food, of course, because we the majority of the consumable that we prepare in our homes, right? We prepare more food than we drink. Um, yeah is that there's the, these incredible swathes of knowledge that are, that's missing. And uh, we see that when we're, trying to, when we're trying to piece together ideas of why we eat what we eat. And I certainly see it in, in the work I do. It's very frustrating because they're great pieces of information that you will not find, the research won't lead you to. And that's simply because our stories have not been documented. Mm -hmm. So traveling around the country was also one of, I think, uh, one of my fondest memories, because I have been to most of the country previously, but it was an opportunity to visit everything, you know, everyone again, and all the other little towns and cities that I hadn't been to before. Mm -hmm. So that was incredibly affirming as well in terms of my own affection for the country and my place in it. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. I actually don't even have the recipes of my own grandmother and my own grandparents. So I always think back to like how we could have had these. And all the time, I'll use my mom's now for my niece. But the fact that we don't have those recipes is just heartbreaking. Um, mm -hmm. And even just of my grandfather's stories, when he told it to us, I never took it down. And now I regret that because now he's gone. So, yeah, it's very interesting that you say that, and I think it's such um, a notable thing to do and so important for future generations. Um, so, yeah, as you know, I am from Mirbank, and I recently learned that you're also from Mirbank in Durban. 
Um, I'm really, really fond of bunny chows. Um, sugar beans, so I'm vegetarian. And I read your piece on Durban curry and its origins. And um, I can't have you on the show and, and not speak about curry, Durban curry especially. So I wanted to know from you, what makes a Durban curry different to other curries? So I also have such fond memories of, of Mirabank that I, I lived with my grandparents until I was three. And mm. of course, visited for many years afterwards between Maritzburg and Durban and her food, you know, that uh, I think is definitely emblematic of what we consider today that typical Durban curry. Because there are many different kinds of Indian curries that come out of different communities in Durban and across wow. the South. But to answer your question specifically, two things I want to say. One is as much as I have researched, as much as I have and presented them in different stories and articles, they're just, they are pieces of information that I find are missing. And they're missing because we, we haven't had sufficient um, academic research done. And we also are struggling with what I mentioned earlier, and that is that we've got uh, traditions of oral history um, across actually many uh, POC cultures in South Africa, and we don't have documentation, but documentation by the people to whom the stories belong. We have outsider documentation, which is often of, well, secondhand, sec, sec, these are secondary sources, they, they lack the nuance, they also lack the, the knowledge um, as well. So that's one thing we have to acknowledge that what I say now and what, what I say, you know, in, in a few years time may even change depending on, you know, if we're able to unearth more information. So typically, the Durban curry people will say to you um, is uh, known for the color. So we, we associate quite a strong, rich color with this. Uh, I think that's because of the use of the masalas. Um, then secondly, there, there's that little oil slick <laughs> that appears. <laughs> you know, that, that what we're speaking about now, grandmother's food, I believe. Yeah. I think our mom cook in a way that's different and so do we. Mm -hmm. Then if it's not a seafood um, dish or, you know, like a fish curry, you're going to have potato in there, which you will find parts of India like Bengal, but in general in Tamil Nadu where the majority of the indentured laborers have their ancestors, this is not necessarily the case. And certainly you'll see that in our biryanis too, right? Yes. Which you won't find um, in some of the more traditional biryanis across the subcontinent. And then lastly would be the heat factor. People um, always speak about the heat of a Durban curry. You know, so I would say that very, very, on a basic level, those are the four things that would define a Durban curry. Yeah, beautiful. I'm so hungry now. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for sharing. <laughs> but yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good way to define it, I think, because the color really is from the masala and, of course, very different to how we would cook the biryani in India, I would say. Um, so speaking about food, I wanted to know as well, how can we use food such as curries, samosas, etc., to get to know other cultures by educating? It was once a post about samosas, um, but it was called Triangles on a food blog, uh, which we know is gentrification. So what can we do to educate people about our food and our cultures to prevent this in the future? And how important is this for the food um, industry as well as cultural diversification? So I know that this is actually, this is a really complicated <laughs> question. Yes. <laughs> but the one thing I want to say is that, so a lot of us uh, feel very protective over our foods for many reasons, but I want to first set out something. Uh, you may, if you've read curry stories and recipes across South Africa or other works, including um, one by Lizzie Collingham, uh, 
as she speaks about tales of cooks and conquerors, as she's a culinary historian, you will know that curry itself is not a dish that necessarily, it's, it's a dish of British origin, actually. So what the British did was they, you know, they, they take these dishes that are complicated, and this was particularly during the time of the Raj when they were living in India. Mm-hmm. And it started, all of these dishes that would have been called, for example, korma or rogan josh, or, you know, or maybe even like a, a goan jakuti, it becomes mm-hmm. a, a modified for their tastes. And then eventually we have this curry powder that develops and that is first sold in pharmacies um, in uh, as an elixir for a whole wow. variety of in the UK, right? And so the British, in a way, take curry around the world via this curry powder as well. That's an extremely simplified version. So we know now that when you go to India, people will know what a curry is, but they won't necessarily call it that. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when we are very, you know, when, when we adopt a dish as our own, as we have with curry, we don't always understand the historical roots of the dish. And that's an important thing. But we don't also expect the, uh, the lay person to understand all of that. But that's where people like myself <laughs> and other writers come in. It's our duty to make sure that these pieces of information are not locked in academia and that they're accessible to everyone who's interested. So that's the first thing. Second thing, uh, on samosa. So samosa, I believe, actually is of um, Arab origin. And, you know, I think we can find the samosa and uh, in Persia and other places. And so it spreads across the world. You'll get the chamusa, mm-hmm. which is um, uh, Goan, but you'll also find in Portugal. You will get versions in Tanzania, in, uh, uh, for example, on the East Coast. They have uh, different versions of samosas. And even in India, you get different varieties, right? You get the mm-hmm. variety that we are used to in, in Durban. Yeah. With the fur and the... Uh, sort of crispy bite, and you get that with a, with a much the North Indian variety with thicker um, pastry. Now that I've said to you all of this about samosa, uh, we should be thinking, okay, which is actually, what is the correct presentation of the samosa? Now that becomes a difficult question to, to answer. Where things get complicated, of course, and I can imagine infuriating for people of color, is when dishes that we are uh, that we consider part of our culture become commodified and become, as you said, sold as triangles, simplified in their terms, where they lose their essence of what they are. And I think the reason we need to look at these things, you mentioned gentrification, we can also speak about cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. The reason it becomes so, um, well, not just complicated, but it becomes a point of uh, uh, you know, people feel so emotional about it, and perhaps rightfully so as well, is that the people who invented these dishes or who, who, or who have harbored them within their cultures for a long period of time have never had the opportunity to necessarily benefit in a monetary landscape that exists in the West. And by the West, I mean also, you know, when we look at our, some of our capitalistic models here in South Africa, selling those triangles, for example. The aunties may be selling them in small quantity for certain religious festivals or certain celebrations, but yeah. they have not had the opportunity to have that samosa being sold in a large supermarket at scale, right? Mm-hmm. So those are things that I think that we really need to investigate and understand why people get um, get invested and upset about these issues. How do we change things, which is something you also asked, 
Yeah. I think it really comes to education and it also comes to people speaking out loud and people, um, but the people who speak out loud also need to understand the nuances within which we are working, such as what I said about smooth and not necessarily originating from India and having roots that are even further and deeper. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's it in brief. I did say to you it was complicated. <laughs> yeah, much more complicated than I thought. I had no idea it's also um, in Portugal as well. So yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. It's I, I guess yeah, it's a nice there's a Goan community in Portugal, so it's uh, oh. popular there, yes. And they also eat it in Mozambique, as you know, and there's a large Mozambican population um, in Portugal. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Ishe, you started um, SA People of Color at the table. Can you tell yeah. us more about the platform? Okay, so the platform is, uh, as you mentioned earlier on, for networking and creating opportunities for people of color in the beverage, uh, food beverage, and related creative industries. So I mean like photography, styling, writing. Uh, in South Africa, our approach is very pan-African. We have uh, we have focused in a very small way. So our idea wasn't to, to grow uh, you know, at an incredible rate. We have a private Facebook page where people, you know, uh, share concerns and ideas um, in confidence. And then we've got a website, of course, www.sapustable.com, a YouTube channel where we've launched a whole variety of panel discussions uh, that really dissect and get into the nitty gritty of issues that uh, POC have been facing, particularly during the pandemic. So we're looking at things from a restaurant, restaurateurs' perspectives, from chefs who are just graduating, uh, uh, young winemakers, uh, beer makers, you know, we look at all these kinds of mental health issues as well. So um, the idea here is truly to create a community, a community that assists each other as well and uh, helps each other to find opportunities. And what we have seen since the first conference we had last year was that, is that so many people have had an opportunity to connect and use each other's services you know whereas previously you may know of so and so or maybe you graduated with so and so but you're so head down and focused because this industry particularly if we're looking at the restaurant industry is so demanding in terms of the time it takes from people they don't have that opportunity to and a lot of the people in, in these industries are very creative people, but they don't have an opportunity to exercise that creativity outside the bounds of work and create mm -hmm. events or different things to showcase their talent. So we've had like sommeliers working with catering chefs and creating events. We've had, you know, um, a black uh, owned coffee roastery working at um, markets that were usually uh, serviced by white providers and so on so there's lots and lots of examples of constantly of people constantly working together and learning from each other because the skill set is so diverse and broad from nutritionists and those who understand um, the issues to do with uh, land dispute for example yeah. and first people rights all the way to you know people who are um, chefs and sommeliers or mm -hmm. wine stewards and so on uh, and the writers and everyone else in between. Cool. Um, so earlier on, you mentioned that it's a private group. Um, you're basically just trying to keep the community small. Uh, just as a matter of interest, what are the requirements if anyone wants to join? 
Okay, so it's just the Facebook group that's private, but of mm -hmm. course the website, the Instagram account, Twitter, all of that is open. I mean, it's just, if you're in the industry, we also welcome allies because one of the things uh, that we're trying to do is we're on the road to registering as an NPO and it's quite an arduous process. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we were just about to host the second um, conference and it just was like about a week before the president announced the official lockdown so we made the decision uh, to, uh, to take a rather you know safe than sorry approach and to cancel yeah. that and to be at the waterfront we had great partners working with us but we had to cancel that but um, yeah so the requirements are simply are you uh, do you work in food and beverage uh, are you a person of color would you you know and then we have a set of rules of course that I think uh, sort of in line with with uh, what what most groups like us uh, believe in, with, which is intersectionality, which is mm -hmm. you know prioritizing prioritizing black women and you know transgender folks, and just generally having a very respectful view. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the views in the community I feel are very progressive, and also uh, very supportive. Yeah. So can we join the group? <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you're not part of uh, the group. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, group. And we're also looking to, um, on the SAPOC site, you will see we've got all these profiles of people. We, we, the website is a free resource for all members to either tell stories if they have space, and we welcome those contributions, and also to be featured uh, because we're trying to grow a directory. So the next time an editor asks me, but you know, I don't really, which happens and has happened so many times over the last decade. I don't really know, you know, a stylist or, or a photographer who happens to be a person of color. And we're like, here you go. Yeah, <laughs> you know? awesome. That's we're amazing. Here. That's a great platform, yeah. We're definitely joining after yes. this. <laughs> so Thank you. Um, so, Isha, as digital content creators, we're constantly exploring the food and wine industry in South Africa. Um, unfortunately, there isn't any equal representation in the industry. How do you feel about the food and wine industry in South Africa? Do you feel like we're making progress in terms of diversity and inclusivity? You know, the fact that there has been some progress made since I first started Food and the Fabulous in, in 2010, mm -hmm. isn't actually, doesn't say much in my opinion, because the kind of progress has been, you know, it's been small, but at the same time, I don't want to, to say that and take away from the great strides that many of uh, the people working in the industry like, like yourselves have made, you know? So I think we need to acknowledge that there has been change. Certainly when in 2010, I was the, uh, you know, it was just myself and maybe one other maybe, you know, um, attending an event or something. I have long stopped attending events and for a couple of reasons. One, that being that, and two, in my personal experience, it just took a lot of time that I could have been, I could have spent working. And so for me, it you know, but it was very jarring to see that uh, it was the way it was. <clears throat> I'm encouraged that it's changing, but from what I can see, I mean, it's not the kind of dramatic change that actually represents the population, is it? I mean, you would be able to tell me better because you're, you're you well post-pandemic, you, or should I say pre-pandemic, you were attending events and uh, collaborations and that kind of thing. How did it look for you? 
I mean, it's really cool to see that we are making some kind of progress, but in my opinion, I don't feel like it's happening fast enough. Um, it's really sad when you go to an event and you're one of the only people of color there, and I just don't feel like that's okay, not, not in 2020. Mm. So it's still there. Yeah. 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 Um, so what I do see is I, I see a greater emergence of uh, bloggers or influencers. Yeah. I'm not sure the title is compared to what it was, you know, when, when I was writing. Of course, for me, when I wrote the blog, it was it was more to give me confidence to do the writing work in journalism that I was doing. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I embarked on various writing courses and stuff. I needed that particular step. But, yeah. you know, for many people who are doing it for... Uh, it is a genre on its own, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. You, 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 are, you, you service a certain um, a market and a need, and it's, it's quite a niche thing that you're doing. Um, to, say, to say that it, it's still the same, I mean, I, I agree with you, and that's heartbreaking. The kind of change that we need to see is, uh, I don't know how, if that's going to happen, uh, certainly not at the speed that we require, we want to see. And, the other th and this brings me to the next the thing I think we should consider. As much as SAPOC at the table is called SAPOC at the table, and we all speak about having a seat at the table, you know, more and more when I speak to others who are working um, in this field and who pioneer and push for diversity, there seems to be an emergence of the thought that we need to create our own table. Yes. Um, yeah. We to create brand new ways of thinking because if you look at it, let's just look at wine. Majority of POC, and you know, I have interviewed how many winemakers and uh, people in the wine industry uh, who, are, uh, who are descendants of slaves. Even so, even though their grandparents were working in the vineyards and their families continue to do so, the idea of drinking wine is fraught, you know, it's uh, it's it's. It's, it's an issue that, you know, people associated with certain kind of behavior. So what am I saying? I'm saying for POC to be drinking wine as well. It's something that we've had to navigate within uh, my generation and your generation, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Prior to this, the consumption of wine was always associated with the innate problems we have in certain communities, such as alcoholism, which is why parents were so nervous about the idea of, you know, a, a girl child going into wine to become a winemaker. You know, here's a smart young girl, what is she doing? So we have that to contend with as well. And the fact that we are new to the market, we understand things amongst ourselves that someone else, someone white, uh, no matter how sympathetic or empathetic they are, they don't will not understand. So I'm bringing this up, maybe these, this can be impetus for us to also have the kind of events or gatherings where yeah. people, it's not about segregation again, it's about a common point, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certain things we don't need to explain even, because mm -hmm. we amongst ourselves do understand that. And um, yeah, just sort of, uh, I'm offering that idea because I also see it come up quite a bit in conversations with thought leaders who are pioneering what diverse tables look like. And I think, yeah, it would be lovely to see what amongst your um, group of influencers and bloggers, how you can see this, how, how do you envision this, perhaps? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that it's important that we, you know, find ways of, you know, like you mentioned, taking up space. Um, 
how do we get to tell our stories when most of the restaurants or wine farms are owned by white people? How do we get diversity into that um, food and wine industry? Yeah, that's that's really difficult and complicated because if we look at ownership, I think ownership informs a lot. I mean, it, it informs everything. I think who owns the land yeah. um, will inform the story all the way down to the plate and the glass and beyond that, in the back into the kitchen where the skull is washing up and so on and so forth, right? And back to the land, in terms of tilling the land, fertilizing the land, you know the labor is black. Mm -hmm. So I think it is extreme. There's never going to be an overnight solution here. The disparity mm -hmm. is far too great, and it's so you may have picked up. I did a panel for SAPOC on diversity mm -hmm. in the industry, yes. and Fiona Beckett was listening in from the Guardian, and I know she used one of the statistics that I managed to pull that day about uh, ownership being three percent, and I know. Yeah. That even the Cape Wine Makers Guild got hold of me afterwards, and they were really surprised and really shocked. And in actual fact, some of the previous statistics that were circulating are slightly exaggerated. So it will be in the region of 60, 65 wine farms. 60, 65 sound like a lot, right? But when you yeah. look at 2,500, you look at the 3%, that's the reality. You can't change the fact. That's yeah. not change, right? Mm -hmm. So the other thing is, we do have a lot of black winemakers and we have you know black sommeliers but as Natasha Box has mentioned we need to look at the entire value chain and it's one thing saying okay so you I've got a black winemaker but you know black folks in the tasting room and I've got one or two black bloggers who are arriving and um, and whatnot but if you look at that entire value chain what does it look like and secondly what are we doing to make sure and to ensure success? Because that, and that plays in now to the question of funding. It plays into the question of mentorship. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even your own journeys with drinking wine, I don't know them personally, but mm -hmm. uh, making an assumption, uh, again, that perhaps like mine, it wasn't that you grew up uh, necessarily. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But your parents. So your business education that started when it started, obviously you must have been of legal air drinking age. Yeah. <laughs> and in my case, many, many years after, and I did a few courses, and then I started meeting people, and so on and so forth. So it's we have a different story to tell. And I think that your generation, my generation, we're also living in a time where we have less shame than it was when I was in my um late teens and 20s there was this i didn't necessarily adopt that attitude but i saw it all around me there was this feeling of one needed to assimilate be it accent be it um, eating habits be it you know using cutlery all of these things that were hard. but now what i see i see it with my peers and i see it with my friends certainly in the last 10 years and for sure in the last six years there's been an embrace, you know, we are embracing those foods that we thought were embarrassing, be it offal, be it, you know, a tin fish, be it inexpensive yeah. things. We're embracing the fact that, you know what, I don't know. Maybe the answer is I don't know. And that I'm learning and my journey started late and I cannot smell the gooseberries, you know? Or the saddle, you know, the, the saddle yeah. sweat. So I, I think we also need to, we need to question 
what is it when we say we want to build our own table does it mean we're going to create systems that existed in the past where you know you and i are the people who have had x amount of experience and now we are the leaders and now we make it easy or do we make it difficult for those who are coming up the ranks you know we need to rethink everything when we speak about creating a table we because what happens when we look let's just look at the idea of decolonization exactly you know what has happened within african countries and we look at african universities they may not have the presence of uh, you know white lecturers and, and and the british may have disappeared but we continue those models in hierarchy in how we accept people in so for pretty much what we have then is we have black folks who are running colonial models mm -hmm. so we need to think about that as well within even within this people think oh food and wine how you know um how how nice you know there's nothing very serious about it but i think that when we look at food and wine and certainly the kind of food journalism i do there's so many aspects here that reflect on our society our politics our culture um that that need to be examined and i think us those of us who are in this space where we're creating conversation and we want to see shift we also need to ask what kind of leaders do we want to be mm -hmm. when we are sitting at this table so i just kind of invite everybody who's an influencer of color blogger of color writer photographer of color to mm -hmm. think about this because replicating the status quo does not make it's just simply replicating the status quo you know yeah it's yeah it's such a huge conversation it's such a huge topic and i think we all have to create our seats at the table and we all have to be inclusive with each other as well it's sometimes uncommon um or it's more common actually for some some people of color to actually judge people of color i think more harshly and for us to judge ourselves uh, a lot more harsher than we would so i think what you're saying is right in the sense of like we have to welcome everyone on board especially people of color and it's not about segregation or anything like that but i think creating their own table is the way forward um why do we yeah, need I to think also the idea of, of being woke means one can, <laughs> one can trip oneself up as well because being woke truly does mean being awake mm -hmm. and sometimes we're awake uh, only in terms of what we're consuming what we think is cool what we think uh the, the conversation on twitter is today and I think it requires so much more, not just of introspection, but of us looking towards the future. And I think that's where we also fail. We, we don't always have, you know, we look, to, we look in the immediate future and we look towards what, you know, what's in it for us. But we need to look at the broader, bigger picture. What do we see? What do you see yourself leading in 20 years from now? Do you see yourself leading with X amount of deals and this and that and considering yourself successful or do we see ourselves leaving with you know 150,000 more of us you know and I think that's something we need to really think about yeah it's empowering to hear and to make it to like bring that to rotation um you know it just means that we have to do so much more work but if everyone's willing to put in that work I think it will be so much more legacy and so much more for future people of color mm -hmm. yeah these days thank you so much um Michelle. thank you for doing this i wish you uh, the both of you all the best with this podcast and i look forward to listening to all the other women that you are going to invite
thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you. We definitely are excited to have so many more women like you on board. And yeah, we'll be chatting again soon and joining your group. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining Conversations with Women of Colour. Check out our social media channels. Search for at Miss underscore Danusha and The Authentic Girl across all platforms. And if you enjoyed the conversation, share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next one.